let's continue our inquiry into desire, the whole realm of desire and <coughs> desires, and uh, expand a bit more our explorations of desire and regarding desire, our skills, our capacities, our insights <coughs> in this area. So I'd like to um, offer a different approach, I think I've mentioned it already, I'd offer a different approach, different way of working with desire uh, than we've uh, elaborated so far. And to tie that together with some of the previous things we've been talking about and uh, also make some other observations <coughs> about desire and our relationship to it. Um, okay, so this different approach, I uh, have broached it, mentioned it uh, in the past in the talk Beauty of Desire Part 2. Um, I can't remember, it was 2011 or something like that, and you can find it if you're interested to have more details, more examples, etc. But I want to offer it again here. Um, for me, what happened was uh, I was meditating in my room at Guy House and felt like in my meditation I tried something different, and it felt to me uh, like I discovered something that was certainly new for me, something... Uh, through an approach, which I'll uh, explain, uh, in the meditation, uh, a, a, di a, dis a discovery of something new, and actually quite surprising, uh, something that I'd not heard an anyone else mention, or describe, or point to, uh, and something that had uh, very uh, surprising implications outside of the kind of box of what was uh, up to then my understanding of Dharma, etc., and any other understanding I'd heard of Dharma at the time. So, I, I can't now actually remember what was troubling me. I know that it was something to do with Guy House politics, and I only even remember that because it's in my notes. I didn't write down what it was. Uh, in the course of time, exactly what it was that was uh, uh, upsetting me at the time in, in, in the political situation at Guy House behind the scenes, um, has completely faded and uh, is of much less interest to me than the actual insights that came there and the possibilities for practice that emerged uh, and, and felt like they were discovered. <clears throat> so something was going on and I was troubled and agitated and, as um, I said, some little bit upset by uh, something to do with guy house politics, and I, I was sitting in meditation and uh, being being with this <coughs> situation and my feelings, and for some reason I approached it, found a different way of approaching it, and I asked myself, "What do I really want here?" Uh, what, is there a desire for something? And, and if there is, what does that desire really want? I can't remember whether it was obvious to me that there was a wanting and desire in the first place, or maybe I just assumed that because there was dukkha. But anyway, I asked this question, what, <clears throat> what do I really want here? What does this desire really want? And I let that question reverberate in, in the being. And the answer that came was freedom from constraint. <clears throat> so, okay, I understood that answer. It had, it had a meaningfulness for me, even though it might sound quite abstract. In its very abstraction, this is something I'm going to come back to, in its very abstraction, it was, it was meaning, very meaningful for me. Freedom from constraint. This really was what the being, the psyche, desired. And so I felt into that desire for, free, for freedom from constraint and really allowed it um, and felt its movement within, uh, more than just within the psyche, within the whole energy body, actually. The energy body reflects the psyche, reflects the chitta. Yes, they're completely intimately connected. We've talked about this, I hope, in the past. But not just allow it, accept that it's there, etc. I mean really open fully to the energetic current of that deep desire for freedom from constraint. Really allow it, really feel the movement. 
um, of that current of desire, really open the whole energy body, the whole body, even bigger than the physical body, open fully, 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 as fully as possible to that energetic current or stream or movement of desire through the being, through the energy body. And when I did that, it felt like uh, the quality that I was wanting, this this uh, freedom from constraint, was actually already available. It it was, so to speak, made available or discovered to be already available by this way of approaching it, through this way of approaching it. So that I had right there the very thing that I most deeply wanted. This sense of freedom from constraint, this knowing of freedom from constraint. And it came not from uh, turning away from the desire, but actually going deeper into it and allowing it more fully, opening to it more fully. Yes, it wasn't a putting down, it wasn't a letting go, it wasn't a... uh, recognition that desires are delusions or anything like that, quite the opposite. So out of this discovery, which really struck me very strong, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, so very enjoyable as an experience, but the insight there uh, was really striking. This is not what should be happening at this point. I haven't seen this before. I haven't heard this before. So that was kind of... Um, condensable down, filterable down, to a set of basically simple practice instructions. Um, When one notices, which I'll say now, when one notices that there's dukkha, whether one notices that there is a a desire uh, obviously there or not. In other words, sometimes we're, we're experiencing dukkha, we're experiencing dissatisfaction, it's clear, I really want this, I need this, or, or whatever it is. It's clear uh, the, the desire, uh, that desire is present within the dukkha and wrapped up in the dukkha. Uh, and sometimes we have dukkha, and it's actually not obvious that there's a desire there at first. Okay, so it doesn't matter either way. Where there's dukkha, or when there is dukkha, whether desire is um, present, obviously, or not. Um, first step, you can ask yourself, what am I really wanting here? What am I really wanting? <clears throat> so this involves, this question involves, uh, or asks for us to unhook the desire uh, that we, from its most immediately obvious object from the thing that we, I I want that person, I want a relationship with that person, I want this uh, event to happen, I want that object, etc. So this is the immediately uh, obvious object of desire. And in a way, this question, what am I really wanting here? What does the desire really want more deeply? Is asking us to unhook from that immediately obvious object that it tends to get stuck on, contracted around, infatuated with, etc., all that. And let the desire reveal, if you like, what its deeper essence is, what its deeper purpose is, what it, what it more, what is more deeply wanted. This will often be, in fact it will always be, appear to be more general, more of a kind of generality. It might even seem a little bit, if you're hearing this, just more abstract. It also, uh, notice and I'll repeat this, it, it involves an unhooking from the image uh, okay, so we're on a slightly different tack now, as I said, a slightly different way of working, a different approach. Um, to the deeper desire, in this case, like freedom from constraint. It wasn't I wanted this or that to happen politically, or someone to say this or that, or or, uh, or whatever. In the example I gave, and I'll give more examples in a second, um, it was... Um, freedom from constraint sounds more general, more abstract. It's the deeper desire there. It wasn't so much, the, the answer to the question, what do I really want, was not so much coming from the mind, but it, it's like dropping that question into the being, to the whole chitta, the whole psyche, the heart and the soul and the mind. So first step, what am I really wanting here? What is really more deeply wanted by this desire? What is the deeper desire, if you like? Second step, clear away 
clear off the table, sweep clear the table, uh, so to speak, metaphorically, of any Dharma preconceptions that one has regarding desire. Desire is a kalesa, it's a defilement, it's an impurity, it leads to dukkha, it is self, uh, it brings self, it's craving and that's problematic. It's all this stuff that we're uh, used to, familiar with, that's really important um, as uh, perspectives, etc. and approaches. But just actually for this for this approach right now, clear it, just clear the table clean of any preconceptions. And in that open space, or more open from preconceptions, just introduce, is it possible to play with, just a little bit, some kind of trust of the deeper intelligence of, if you like, the soul, or of the desire. Just playing with the idea, the possibility that this movement of desire looks problematic, may even look petty, certainly looks like it's causing dukkha, etc. Or wrapped up in the dukkha. Just play with the idea that actually there's something to trust here. There's a treasure deep down there in the desire. It, it, it uh, manifests in its movement a certain intelligence of soul. Like uh, like phototropism, the, the, the movement of um, for instance, sunflowers turning towards the light, turning towards the sun, and other plants as well, as you know how plants and trees grow, if you like, towards the light, that maybe the desire, deep down, certainly it gets twisted, certainly we get into wrong relationship with it, but maybe deep down there's something akin to phototropism there, and a kind of intelligence of the soul. Maybe. But at any rate, there's there's a kind of, let's just trust it and see if there's not a treasure here that, uh, if it's not actually already there, if that's too much as, a, as an idea uh, to trust, actually trust that the way of relating to desire can turn it into a treasure. Okay, so that's an easier step in terms of trust. That would be the second one. Clear away preconceptions, introduce a little bit, some degree of trusting this movement of desire. Those first two steps are actually reversible. So the, the, the asking, what am I really wanting? What does this desire really want? Unhooking from the obvious object, as the first step. The second step, clearing away preconceptions, introducing a little bit of trust, playing, entertaining a little bit of trust of the desire. You could flip them. Okay, um, so even when I'm not, I don't yet know what the what the deeper desire is. I could just introduce the uh, entertaining of the idea that there's there is a way of paying attention to desire that turns into a treasure, or there's something buried deep in desire already that is a treasure that can be discovered. The order doesn't matter there of those first two steps. Then the third step in this three step. Uh, process of the practice here would be to then really feel that desire and really allow it. Uh, it's almost like you can feel it in the whole being and especially in the energy body and feel it. Perhaps it's a current, a movement, a stream, a, a surge. Perhaps it's really strong. Perhaps it's quite subtle. But really feel it and really, really allow it and really open. Um, to, to that energy, that stream, that current, that movement. Yeah, really opening the space of the energy body and allowing that to flow. That's the third step. So let's give uh, some examples to flesh that out a little bit, uh, that process, that, that uh, practice. Uh, these examples are actually, uh, I'll give a couple of examples, they're actually repeats uh, old from that talk that I mentioned, The Beauty of Desire, part two, where there are more examples as well. Um, part of the reason for that was because this I discovered from, and, and, then, and then got very interested in it and just started trying it out. Uh, w with this hunch that I had of of how it would w work and that it would work, and started trying it out on uh, yogis in distress and in interviews, and uh, friends also, etc., and colleagues, and uh, and and with myself in different situations. And uh, this was part, I'm tying this in now to the whole researcher fantasy. This was part of the researcher fantasy that actually uh, grew. 
uh, if you like, or emerged alongside. Uh, was actually, to be honest, it was it, was, it had been there uh, on and off as one of an available fantasy that had been there for quite a while for me. But it emerged with this discovery, and then I rode uh, with that expanding research of fantasy as part of the whole research that they, they that fed into the whole thing. So I was kind of conducting research, if you like, on myself and with others, and trying this process out when people were going through different things. And I tried it for, I, I don't know how long, perhaps a couple of months or something, uh, quite a lot, and I estimate that it probably was successful um, in the ways I expected it to be. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing about 95% of the time uh, that it became so predictable exactly what would ha- uh, happen uh, that that it would open things up in this way. Um, actually, there's nuances that I may come to later, but but basically the fact that it would open up. Re- relieve the dukkha, open up in this way of realizing that one already had uh, the abundance of what it was that one was desiring and, and the dukkha would um, release in that and, and that would be a, a transformation of the experience of the, of the body, uh, the energy body and the, and the consciousness and the psyche in a different state would open up. And that became a- actually so predictable um, that I stopped uh, kind of pursuing it so so uh, much in the research and stopped taking notes on what I observed uh, with myself and with people. Um, the one time that I remember it didn't work was with a friend who, as we were doing it, was kind of slouched on a sofa or something, and I hadn't said to her, uh, you know, partly because it was a friend, I hadn't said to her, you know, I think it would be better if you sat up so that the energy could flow uh, more easily. Um, so it didn't actually work so well. But apart from that, I'm pretty sure it worked every time. So I sort of was convinced and stopped taking notes, as a result of which I don't remember a lot of the examples now, <laughs> as I moved on to doing uh, other, other, other kind of, you know, if we use the research of fantasy, other, other areas of research, etc. So these are old examples. Um, excuse me for repeating. They're actually good examples because they reveal... Um, different facets of the process and of what's involved and the assumptions, etc. So one involved um, <coughs> uh, a woman, um, a student, who is, is not on retreat, um, uh, who was had met a man in another country and was uh, engaged actually in a kind of long-distance romance. He was a long, long way away. And so it was a new romance for her, and there was lots of texting and messaging back and forth. And she came in for an interview that she requested, and she said, well, I'm, I'm craving, she said. And uh, she'd done you know, a fair bit of Dharma practice, and we had worked in the past with Vedana and watching craving and, and uh, stationing the awareness on craving and uh, noticing different Vedana and letting, not getting sucked up in the craving. That We'd done quite a lot of that practice. And she was very interested in that, very interested in equanimity, etc. And that was her kind of leaning and interest for actually quite a long time in practice. She said, I'm craving. And I feel that that craving is is a contraction of the being, it's painful. And uh, there was also fear that I might lose this, this budding romance, it might fall apart. Um, I fear that I'm, she was planning to go out there uh, to visit him and see what would happen and I fear that it won't work out and then there'll be the loss and the pain and this is all dukkha um, amongst the loveliness but she was also getting in, into uh, you know, a, a reasonably difficult state with, with the whole thing and uh, she was aware that, uh, in her words, craving involves hype. We had talked about this before. It involves um, constructing of artificial uh, differences and kind of um, amplifying the differences between things and times so that they seem really different. That over there is so much more preferable than this over here. Here and now is... is uh, 
less than, not so interesting, not so desirable, uh, is really markedly different from that over there. So, and, and the papancha that com- comes in um, amplifies that process. The word papancha is actually connected with the word amplify. Uh, etymologically implies that. Um, or expand, etc. Uh, so, she was a little bit aware of that already, but we talked about how it was operating in this case, because she said <coughs> the adventure begins then. In other words, when she... Uh, when her plane arrives in that country to see what happens with this with this guy, etc. The adventure begins then, she said. Now I'm just kind of in limbo. I'm just waiting. Um, now we looked at that and saw how, how much of a construction that was uh, because there was lots of lovely exchange uh, electronically, etc. Now, <coughs> um, in, in the moment. Um, and it the papancha comes in and the craving comes in and and uh, denigrates the here and now and raises up the there and then and and really inquiring into that is it really that different uh, without the mind making it so without this process that kind of craving tends to ignite this papanchizing process that um, increases differences, which then feeds back to cause uh, more craving, etc., and that whole samsara cycle, basically. So we talked about a way of kind of looking that uh, uh, kind of worked against the papancha, by saying, you know, you've got six sense objects here, five aggregates here, uh, and when you get there, to see him in that in the foreign country, there will be six sense objects and five aggregates. And uh, is it really that different, or is it the mind painting things, making it seem different, uh, in a way that's actually uh, not that helpful? So this, this kind of standard Dharma teaching, we went into this um, and seeing that if we can kind of. <coughs> um, deconstruct the hype, then the craving also releases. And as we release the craving, the hype uh, de- you know, gets deconstructed, etc. So that was, that was all good, and we talked about that in this kind of long interview. But then also introduced this other approach, the less standard approach, and I asked her, what are you wanting? To which she just replied, him. Very simple. Him. It's like, it's obvious, right? I want him. What, are you a dummy? Um, she looked at me like, what are you, a dummy, Rob? Uh, I want him. And it, it, you see how hard it is to see sometimes beyond the most obvious uh, object that uh, desire seems to be presenting. I want him. And I said, okay, uh, let's explore that a little bit more. What's involved in that desire? And so I asked her again, and kind of a little bit more spaci- spaciously, etc., and kind of to, to, to uh, open it up a little bit. And she said, "I love that I can say anything uh, with him, and I'm I'm listened to. I love that I can say anything, and I'm listened to." And so even that, so that's that's more general, uh, or, or, or rather, it's, a, it's an expansion. But even that, we say, okay, let's let's go into that a little bit deeper. What the deeper desire is, and she broke it down into four parts of the deeper desire, um, connected to this fact that she felt like she uh, loved that she could say anything and that she was listened to, and she said, I want the opening of the heart. I want the expression, the fact that she could express. I want the connection of being received. And I want to love. So the general desire was actually full of all that. The opening of the heart, the the expression, the connection of being received. And I want to love. Can you hear how um, relatively they're quite general and kind of a little bit abstract sounding? I don't know if it's quite the right word, but certainly more general. In this case, then, once you got to that level, the desire is not so much uh, hooked on or landing on or contracted around a limited object. The object that it wants is actually kind of a more open object, a deeper level object, we could say. Uh, It's not really even an object in the usual sense of the word. Um, 
And then feeling that, in touch with that, okay, stay with that, that deeper level of the desire, and actually feel, uh, she said, this current is, is quite deep and quite powerful, and it's not how she usually experienced herself, or what she, uh, in her words, how she usually takes herself to be. And I was just with her and encouraging her, okay, let it fill the body, allow it, feel it. And, and, and really this emphasis on really, uh, if it's possible, to open to it, really open the body to allowing its current and feeling it. As she did so, uh, as, as she did so, you know, w- with me uh, kind of supporting her a little bit, then her, she reported that in that moment, then as she did that, her self-boundaries, her, the sense of uh, the boundaries of herself was beginning to dissolve, and an expansion uh, was happening aloud in, in the whole sense of her whole being. Now, she had done some practice, but not not actually that much at the sort of what I would call the, the deeper end, etc. So this expansion of the whole sense of being and the, and the sense of the boundaries dissolving was actually quite scary for her. And there was some resistance and contraction uh, that, that kicked in. I was like, okay, look, look, we don't need to force anything. Um, what, let's, just, let's just respect the fear here. What, what, what are you afraid of here? What's the fear uh, that you're, that's causing this resistance and contraction? Is it fear? Yes. What is it? Is it um, losing yourself? Is it disappearing? Is it just the unfamiliarity? Um, at that point, we ran out of time in the session, uh, and I had uh, another meeting or something. Um, but we talked about you know, the need for compassion for the self that's resistant and fearful to that uh, to that opening and that new experience, um, and that the compassion, introducing the compassion and the not forcing uh, over over a, into a new th- over a threshold into a new territory of being and experience, the compassion um, for the self that feels fearful, that is resistant, that is uh, a little bit contracted there or trying to keep contracted, if you like, uh, can really help. And it's possible to play one's edges with new experiences. But eventually, and whether it happens kind of immediately or relatively quickly, or really, you know, quite at a gentle pace, slowly over some time, these kinds of expansions of being, and I'm mentioning it because it's actually quite a characteristic experience of working, not always, but of working with this way, uh, with this practice that I'm uh, elaborating on right now. Um, But eventually, we're able to allow that kind of expansion. And we can feel in that a whole new sense of... um, life force, if you like, libido, let's say, uh, connected with the desire, a whole new sense of self that goes with that, a whole new sense of strength, openness, independence, being independent of this or that thing happening, event happening, of getting this or that object, etc., and one sees this, this um, abundance and opening and independence and strength and, and uh, beauty that comes and all that uh, treasure that kind of comes up to the surface and is made available is <clears throat> strangely not seen to be not dependent on the object of, of desire being there, as I said, on having it. We are fulfilled to a, to a huge extent, to a surprising extent, I mean, almost always there was a surprise involved here for people. Um, fulfilled to uh, an extent more than what we are used to, feeling, uh, used to feeling in our lives. We're not used to feeling that extent of abundance and fulfillment and openness and treasure and brightness. And, but we're fulfilled not by getting this or that object and not even by trying to <clears throat> renounce or ignore or, quote, let go of the desire, but actually through the very flow of the deep desire, going, as I said, going deeper into it and really uh, respecting and really opening, opening to it. The libido, the life force, is opening the being there through the desire. And then we may wonder with that, is it actually possible that um, craving, which as we've been saying has this kind of contraction 
um, to it, feels painful. In this case, this woman, there will be the swings to the fear of loss, of rejection, etc. Um, involves this repeatedly moving away from the present moment to uh, daydreaming and being lost in the future and, and that kind of what we might call poor kind of fantasizing. Uh, is it possible that th- that kind of that craving, in that sense, the, the contraction of craving, is actually a result of not connecting to, not allowing, and uh, not re- not realizing, recognizing, and not allowing the deeper desires to unfold, to be felt, and to, for those currents to flow? You understand that con- the c- what we call craving. Uh, is is a matter of not connecting to, not realizing, not allowing the deeper desires to uh, uh, to un- unfold and to flow. And similarly, with eros, it's like uh, goes to craving when 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 it doesn't have the imaginal dimension. When something is blocked in terms of psyche and logos, here is a slightly different approach that we're talking about, and it it will move to contraction of craving when there is not this deep respect for the desire, connecting to it, recognizing it, feeling it, and really allowing it. And this um, funneling into craving and the contraction of craving and the pain and all the kind of uh, craziness that goes with that um, may just also be a habit of the being. In other words, we are trained away from the erotic imaginal and away from the, if you like, the deeper levels of desire, uh, in, uh, as we talk about in this, uh, in this other approach. One wonders, uh, what, what is going on here? Why does it take one course habitually into the contraction of craving and not others? And is it that actually uh, there's, uh, if you like, as, as I said, going into that is a result of not allowing something else, not either in the, in the context of the erotic imaginal direction, not allowing the psyche and the logos to expand, not allowing the imaginal dimensions in the context of this kind of practice, not allowing the, the, the deeper levels of desire and that, and that movement of the being there, the contact with it, the allowing it, the opening to it, the respect for it. Another example uh, is actually also, I could give an example myself just partly because it's a different one, uh, a different kind, uh, and this goes back a few years and I was... Um, interested in the still am actually very much interested in for many reasons the the, the what uh, a study of um, modern physics could bring to a dharma understanding and the ways it could open up certain the parallels with emptiness but also the implications there for um, ontology <coughs> uh, cosmology and more and more now, actually, epistemology as well, studying the, phys- uh, the philosophy of science, etc., a, a little bit. So, but this is back then, um, I said these are old examples, and, and I was studying a lot about um, uh, modern physics. And in the heat, or if you like, of, of, the, uh, of the eros there, in, of the desire... I felt something which I recognized was, was as familiar to me and, and my kind of, uh, if you like, personality structure or, or constellation or whatever, was a kind of impatience um, to understand and a pressure to understand. So I was hungry to understand. I was studying a lot and, and really the sense was, well, you, you, you read something and then, but that just takes you to the next thing to read. The next book, one book leads to another and you kind of follow these leads and the feeling of impatience and pressure was coming in, sort of in the background, but then a little bit pushing on the whole psyche. It felt like I was unable to read um, read these books fast enough, and that there was something, a sense of, uh, I wanted to arrive at, at the sort of end of the whole process. Now I understand, and now there's no more books to read. Phew, done. Um, so I recognized this pressure, actually just a dukkha, didn't see that there was a desire in it, then recognized the desire that was pressuring there, and felt it, as I said, with, with these instructions that I've uh, outlined, and, and go into the deeper question, what, what is it wanting, this desire? 
This example is a little bit interesting because the desire at first blush seemed to say, I want to um, end this process of inquiry. Um, I want to understand everything so I don't have all this kind of continuous more books to read sort of thing because one thing leads to another, one understanding leads to another or one uh, line of inquiry opens another one or whatever it is. When I went more into it, actually, it what was what was deeper and more um, alive was <coughs> uh, actually that uh, it it was it was a desire for inquiry. It was it was this desire to question, to to make discoveries, etc. In this case, um, uh, to to discover for myself by by absorbing what others had discovered and. Um, making connections between what I was doing, etc. Um, this question, what is it wanting, actually opened this sense of joy in the ongoing inquiry. So that, if you like, the, 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 the desire changes tack in the inquiry, or we could say that one it opened to a realization of how much uh, of a desire for inquiry, there was ongoing inquiry. Yeah, so the change in tack is that ongoingness becomes beautiful uh, and the thing that's wanted. And there was tremendous joy liberated with that. The joy of ongoing inquiry, ongoing questioning, ongoing discovery. So this whole pressure that was felt and, and, and the sense of it needs to end, etc., was um, liberated through the asking the question and opening to it. And there was a whole um, uh, beautiful and energized, uh, e- energizing sort of opening uh, that happened in the energy body, in, in the whole, in the whole chitta, in the whole psyche, really, um, the, of of this joy of discovery there. Okay, so let, let's just. Uh, state again um, those three steps. So there's two examples, um, three steps. Um, first, uh, one may uh, clear away, let's reverse that because this first two steps are reversed, we'll put them in the other order this time. First one clears away whatever Dharma preconceptions that make one uh, dismiss desire or denigrate it or suspicious of it, etc. It's a kilesa, it's only coming from self or it feeds the self or um, it causes selfing or it is selfing or it's craving, it just brings dukkha, all that. Um, and just clear away, even just momentarily, even just just as an experiment, just just temporarily, I'm going to clear away those preconceptions without um, needing to clear them away forever or say there's no insight involved in them. That's absolutely not true. Just temporarily clear them away and see if you can introduce just just temporary, uh, temporarily uh, a kind of playing with or entertaining of <coughs> a trust, a trusting of a deeper intelligence to the movement of desire. That there is... Uh, either in the way that I relate to it, or already there at bedrock, uh, if you like, a treasure uh, waiting to be discovered in the movement of desire. And then this question, second step, what am I really wanting? What is this desire really wanting? What is the desire really for? Unhooking or um, ungripping, if you like, uh, letting the desire ungrip from its sort of immediate obvious image of what I want, or this person, or that object, or that um, event, uh, whatever it is to be this way or that way, um, and let it, let it find uh, or, or, or reveal to you what, what's the deeper thing wanted, the deeper level, if you like, of the, of the desire, which will probably sound more general. And then really feeling that in the psyche, in the body, and allowing, especially in the energy body, really opening, really, really opening the space for that current, uh, that energy, that movement there. <clears throat> now, I could say, I, I think I'll skip. I was gonna, I was gonna um, kind of report some more findings there um, regarding the actual experiences and the states that uh, seem to tend to open up when one does this kind of practice and, and bring a bit more specificity and nuance 
to that, but I think I'll leave that actually for now and uh, leave you to, um, to research it for yourself um, and play with it and see what you discover uh, in terms of the directions uh, and as I said, the experiences and the states that can open uh, and if there's, if there's patterns there and repeatable uh, kind of observations and, and movements that happen. So perhaps that will be for another retreat, we'll see. Um, but just to say something around all this, and actually around everything that we're talking about on this course, on this retreat, you know, sometimes with desire there is lack wrapped up in it, or it's coming from a sense of lack, and or or another emotion, or something like that. And sometimes, of course, so we need... Uh, we may need, rather, we may need sometimes to first be with the actual emotional experience of distress or difficulty or lack or sadness or grief or whatever it is, anger, upset, that's um, that's going on. And maybe that too has a few different aspects or as a mixture, as often emotion, an emotional state is, a mixture of different emotions, not always, but often is. And just to be with that um, and see and feel and allow what's going on there emotionally. And oftentimes there is um, a lack there that's felt. And the question then is, uh, well, two questions. Um, one is, do I have the skill to do that? Do you have the skills to do that? As we've talked about in some of the energy body work and on other retreats and teachings elsewhere, um, just really developing my ability, your ability to work well with, um, in this case, difficult emotions. Also, beautiful emotions can be difficult to handle. Um, but can, do I have that? Do I know that? Is that in my toolkit? You know, that I really have different ways of working well, meeting well, opening to, caring for, in meditation, in my life, um, the, the, my, the range of emotions that come up for me in the course of life and practice. So, so do I have that skill? First question. And second, is it necessary to first do that before trying this other approach? Because what can often happen is... Okay, we assume that it is. And even more than that, we can get into a kind of habit um, where we always go to the lack, or we always go to the negative, and we always kind of linger there in a way that just keeps it at a feeling of lack. In other words, it doesn't really transform it uh, very much, or maybe it just kind of gradually, gradually soothes, and we're kind of okay, and or we just get distracted by the next thing that's demanding our attention. Um, but we can kind of get stuck in a in a habit here, and also in an emotional constellation of lack. So that yes, lack and desire often go together, not always, often as I'll come back to, um, and we can get more into uh, or have a habit of tending towards um, going towards the lack thread of that uh, of those two threads that are interwoven, the lack and the desire. And we always go to the, the lack, and we might feel, because of our habit of doing that, that this practice that I'm um, explaining now regarding uh, way of way of being with desire, this practice well, that's not. That's a kind of artificial construct. You're making something happen if you do that, because the, it's not natural if you do that. The real thing, the thing that's actually present, the thing that's natural, the thing that's unartificial, not a construct, is the lack itself. And that feels like the natural thing. I'm just, quote, being with what is. Um, failure then, to see the dependent origination. This is so important. We've touched on this before. So, so important. I, I'm not seeing the dependent origination. If I have that kind of view and that kind of response to hearing these different practices and these different approaches, I'm simply not understanding the dependent origination of experience. And it, it may very well be that through the habit of what I pay attention to and the ways of paying attention to it, that I'm actually, I just keep building this, these particular, this particular range, limited range of emotions and experience. I mean, through the 
what I pay attention to and how I pay attention to and the habit involved in that, I do not see that I'm actually constructing. I think I'm just being in a uh, way that's very natural and not adding anything to the experience. I'm just being with what is, but I keep constructing that same what is. In, whether it's a sense of lack or, or whatever it is. I'm not understanding the dependent origination, the fabricated, constructed nature of all experience and all perception. And I'm just locked into a kind of habit there without even realizing what's going on. And I take it as the truth, reality, quote, what is, things as they are, etc. So again, and I, you know, it's just my particular emphasis in how I teach is that can we can we um, hold this uh, aim of flexibility, flexibility of practice, flexibility of approach, flexibility of conception? <clears throat> that, that, that can we hold that as a sort of principal aim of practice so that I, we can do it lots of different ways? Here's this dukkha, I have lots of different ways of approaching it. Here's this feeling of lack, I have lots of different ways of approaching it. Here's this desire mixed with the lack, we have lots of different ways of approaching that. Lots of angles and and ways that it unfolds the experience in different directions. Can we, again, experiment and see, rather than just um, being locked into a set of assumptions that we're no longer uh, investigating. Experiment and see. Okay, um, can I go to the emotion and care for that and be with that in different ways? And can I actually, other times, try this thing with the desire? Can I do both? Can I learn to do both? Do I have that in my repertoire? And if not, can I actually gradually move towards a place, uh, a time when I have that, then both in my repertoire? They're both just ways of approaching things. Part of that might be that I actually need the skill to differentiate lack and desire. They're not the same. They're two different things. I mean, they're connected, for sure. They can be connected. But I'm not... I'm not, I, I can differentiate them as two strands that are perhaps entangled and actually unentangle them. And I, I'm not necessarily assuming an order. First I have to do this and then, and then I'll be able to do that. Well then, only then am I allowed to do that. Uh, only then should I do that. First I have to do this. Yes, sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes you could go straight to this um, uh, working with the desire as I've, I've elaborated in this talk. <clears throat> and the beauty of desire part two talk, and sometimes not. Sometimes I want to dwell more with the with the emotional difficulty, care for that in different ways. Then maybe go to the desire thing, or not do the desire thing at all. You know. Um, so there's a lot here about um, ways of practicing and um, order of of practice, and our assumptions around all that. And again, you know, presenting this kind of practice, um, is it a, pre, a desired prerequisite, a necessary uh, preliminary uh, capacity to be able to let go of desires and cravings that we talked about right at the beginning? You know, some familiarity with that. Do I also even allow myself to feel desire? Or is there this kind of, we talked about this anti-libidinal force, and I just shut it down before I've even felt it, and then oh, great to find Buddhism, because it just seems to be agreeing with that. Yes, desire is bad, therefore just shut it down. And actually what's propelling me is a kind of anti-libidinal drive, in Fairburn's words, or this kind of fear of, of having a desire. Uh, can I actually feel it? Can I feel the, uh, the energy of it, have the feeling? Do I, let, can, do I recognize it? Do I know it? Do I know the different shades of it? So these may well be, kind of, if you like, prerequisite um, skills, capacities, uh, abilities <coughs> that, that may be necessary for these kinds of practices. So there's three basic steps, and this question about um, being with the lack before or how much or do I need to etc that's these to me these are um, kind of questions that are involved in all this around that we that I would just like to open them up as questions and, and as I said 
this need, I think, to experiment and learn how to do things different ways from different directions in different orders, question assumptions, all of that. And the other thing with the um, instructions for this practice is to throw in this thing about posture that probably for most people, certainly at first, but if not most of the time, posture will actually be quite important because uh, allowing and opening to energy flow uh, will be easier <clears throat> the third step of this practice will be easier um, when when the body is uh, the physical body actually is relatively open and upright and un, un sort of uncontracted uh, etc so I would uh, I'd like to offer this I have offered this and we, we would like to encourage you to pick this up as uh, another possible practice and play with it, try it, um, do it repeatedly. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be now, but at some point do it repeatedly um, until you kind of know how to do it. Have that, as I said, in your repertoire. Um, but to do that and to have it available, to have it actually be a working resource, you need to do it. You need to try it. You need to experiment with it. Um, but can... Uh, you know, my my suggestion, uh, you know, is uh, that through through experimenting with, through trying it, actually making that effort to to play with it for yourself, um, it can become incorporated in your toolbox, if you like, and that's a really really good tool to have. Not to use it all the time, certainly not. It's like a toolbox. You have a range of tools. And uh, apart from just being really helpful because it's more resources, it's also fun. You know. That's part of the creativity. But you, you're only going to incorporate it and have it available as a tool if you pick it up. You listen again to the instructions, you play with it, you make it your own. Yes, this goes for all, all practices. One of the things that struck me when I first introduced this in teaching was that <coughs> only two people, or either I only ever heard back from two people, that they actually took it on board in a way that they repeated it for themselves. In other words, not with me sitting there guiding, kind of offering it to them and suggesting that they try it and uh, or even asking if they were willing to try it and then kind of guiding them through it. Now, it could be that, you know, um, loads of people were doing it all over the place, but I kind of doubt it. Um, I could be wrong uh, and... Uh, but um, but I only heard back from two people. One one of them actually died um, a few years ago. But um, and the other one, I don't know if she ever repeated it after uh, the initial sort of thrill of discovering uh, discovering it and the ability to do it and how transformative it was and what it opened up and actually how easy it was to do. Um, and that's also quite interesting. That fact is quite interesting, or that observation is is quite interesting to me. Either people are just not telling me, just didn't tell me, or um, it just says something about again my uh, naivety. I think in uh, in in not repeating teachings. Um, so I think that to be taken on board. Uh, new things, new approaches, new teachings, new practices uh, need, it seems, like an enormous amount of repeating. Uh, and probably by much more than one person, um, they probably need to be quite widespread in their dissemination, probably over a continent and uh, o over time and with different voices and also... Uh, um, offered much more slowly, even slower than I'm doing here in this talk, um, so that they become just integrated into instructions over and over again, and people just become used to them and hear, hear it and, and really do it. Maybe it also needs a special name, you know, like we have a name for different practices, and maybe that's part of what allows something to be <coughs> digested and uh, assimilated really actively, organically. So I don't know, I'm, I said to you I'm not very good at names, but something like um, uh, opening to the deeper current of desire. Well, that's a way of summing up what that practice is. Opening to the deeper current of desire. Uh, still quite a mouthful. But um, anyway, that that was 
interesting to me, and again, it's connected with this whole research of fantasy, so tying that whole <coughs> theme of the teachings uh, with what we're talking about in, uh, today. Um, again, I wonder why why it was, uh, apart from the need for repetition, but I won- in, in the teaching, I wonder why uh, people didn't then learn the practice or um, repeat it for themselves. Um, oftentimes what happened when I worked with people with this and sort of took them through it step by step is oftentimes they were so struck by the actual experience and the transformation of experience of the sense of the body and the state of consciousness and the sense of kind of super abundance um, that came. It was a kind of a wow experience. But this to me is also really interesting, how we can um, be, if you like, captivated by the intensity, I've talked about this before, the intensity of an experience and and uh, the sort of uh, wow factor of the experience and miss the principle involved. This Again, this has to do with the researcher fantasy. Um, because it's the principle, certainly it's the learning of the, the Let's call it a technique, even the practice, and then the principle that comes out of it. What's it saying about desire? What are the principles of the practice, and what are the ramifications? What are the implications, etc.? Actually, the more wow thing to me is not so much the uh, experience that opens up in the moment when you do this, but actually the principle and how that, or whether it fits into a narrower, or how it fits with a narrower Dharma understanding, etc., or Dharma understandings, um, there's more freedom that will come out of that, um, and the questioning uh, of all that. Um, so that was one thing that uh, I observed, was people were often just quite struck by the experience, and neglected to ask, and there's a, you know, in other words, there was the absence of the researcher fancy to ask about the principles. What's going on here? Isn't that surprising? Um, whoa, whoa, okay. What does this imply? What does this mean we have to rethink? Uh, what avenues does this open? And of course, sometimes it's, it, part of that was to do with, you know, people are just relieved to feel better. I was feeling really quite upset about something or, or other, and now, um, Rob's just done some magic stuff with me, and I'm just relieved to feel better. Um, and, you know, that's understandable, but there's a way that the the deeper investigation gets eclipsed, and tying it to our thing about fantasies of the path and of the self and the path, the research of fantasy is not being supportive there. <coughs> and uh, just last thing about this is that um, sometimes... Uh, I remember uh, saying it in in a couple of different, uh, explaining this approach in a couple of different places and a couple of different people sort of saying back uh, something like, oh, so what you're just saying is just kind of accept everything and be with what is, Um, which for many reasons just uh, has now... Kind of um, is now partly something I expect that there's a kind of uh, way that we can hear. I've said this before in other places. I think that there's a way that we can hear that kind of chops off what's new or different and just assimilates it to what we hear most of the time, what we're used to hearing, or what we already know. So people very often used, to, you know, are used to hearing very often a sort of basic Dharma understanding of be with what is, accept what's happening. And although someone might be saying something really uh, quite different from that, uh, it, it can get just just missed. Yeah. So that that's, uh, used to be quite shocking to me, but I, I've kind of um, got used to it. And I think it's partly just, partly to do with um, <clears throat> how we're taught, and partly to do with how we learn as human beings, that uh, we tend to, it's important to create boxes and uh, and then fit things into those boxes, but there's a cost sometimes, uh, or at a certain stage, there's a cost of doing that. But 
clearly, if we go into this, these three steps, because of the three steps we've talked about um, in this in this particular practice, it's not the same as just accepting everything. It could sound a little similar, but um, if we uh, say again, you know, uh, <coughs> really opening to the energy is not the same as just accepting. And that just accepting can be very kind of, yeah, you know, it's not this full-bodied, full, uh, full movement of opening of the energy body that I'm talking about. Neither is there this <coughs> just accepting. Neither is there this active playing with uh, a conception or, or of trust, and actually moving into entertain the idea that desire may be trustable, may conceal or or eventually reveal a treasure if I if I relate to it in a different way. <coughs> That's not there in just a generic sort of <coughs> excuse me. Be with what is, accept everything, teaching. And neither is this question of going into the deeper level of the desire. What am I really wanting here? Just kind of noticing, oh, I desire this person, I desire this to happen, I wish that would happen and not this, or whatever it is. It's just noticing the kind of, <coughs> if you like, uh, more immediate uh, ob- level of object of desire. So it's actually quite different. If, and I've said this before as well, if... Um, we have a limited conception of what the Dharma is. It's just saying, be with what is and accept. And, uh, you know, accept, uh, try and accept everything. Um, if our understanding is limited, uh, and then our practice is limited because the understanding is limited, it's just limited to kind of generically trying to do that, <clears throat> sort of trying to be in your body, as someone described their understanding to me years ago of what Dharma was, uh, essentially, uh, then that understanding and that limitation on, on concept and, uh, and limitation on practice will, will lead to limited experiences and uh, limited insights. Uh, if it's just that, uh, well, the range of uh, practices that I can do, and the range of experiences that may open to me, the range of changes in perception and openings, um, and openings of states of consciousness and feeling, and all of that, and the and the range of understandings that I have will be limited. It will be limited by by the narrowness of the concept and by the narrowness of the practices that come out of that narrowness of, or are implied by that narrowness of concept. <coughs> Okay, last thing for now. Um, this practice that I've elaborated on, which I've already forgotten the name of what I called it, the opening to the deeper current of desire, yes. Um, that practice, surely there's a better name, but that practice um, is also, you'll notice, is, is different, as I've said, from um, what we've been elaborating in imaginal practice. <coughs> in imaginal practice, the image is retained. It's always retained. It may go deeper, it may change a little bit, but the image is always, it's regarded as primary and it's retained in imaginal practice, in the erotic imaginal. Yeah? And by primary I mean we're not reducing the image, oh, it's really just this or that, it's a representation of this or that. In uh, this practice of opening to the deeper current of desire, uh, the the image is actually regarded as secondary, if you like, to finding out what the deeper, more general, if you like, desire is. So in that sense, the image may be regarded as a representation and secondary. Uh, and the image is not generally retained, because I'm going more to the, uh, if you like, the con let's say, the, the general, this deeper level of content of the desire, object of the desire, <coughs> Excuse me, and the energy involved in that. So there's, we're really talking about a different, a different way in to the uh, experience of, of of desire, different way of working with desire, different tack there, different approach. <coughs> Actually, having said all that, it's really just a matter of emphasis, and there is certainly some overlap between the two. Um, the erotic imaginal, and you're certainly. Uh, as we've said on this retreat and emphasized on this retreat and other retreats, it involves um, 
a, a trusting, playing with trust, a little bit of trust, a modicum of trust, um, trusting the eros and the image, so those two. Uh, so imaginal, erotic imaginal practice involves that, and it involves um, working with the energy body, and in some instances op- opening, etc., or, or at least that, let's just say, working with the energy body. So there's overlap here. And this practice of opening to the deeper current of desire, actually when we look deeper at that, we see that this whole deeper trust of desire that we're entertaining is an idea, but it's also a kind of image. <clears throat> so I hope in the future to just talk about how image and idea uh, are really not separate. Uh, they, they kind of shade into and imply and, and connect with each other. But so so we could say in, uh, that there is overlap here because the opening to the deeper current of desire practice um, actually already involves Im- image in the imaginal in in its relationship with 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 this uh, desire in the form of this deeper trust of desire that involves the imaginal. But to say something we've said and said right from the beginning of the treat to say it again. Um, just to, you know, hopefully you're getting very aware now, it's like blindingly obvious, just how easy and you know, relatively common it is to um, stop or arrest prematurely what could be um, much wider, deeper, more nuanced explorations of desire, craving, eros, clinging, <coughs> than uh, we may uh, uh, first assume are warranted. We just, it's, it's so um, common to just you know, stop that, that movement of exploration so it doesn't actually get very wide, it doesn't go very deep, and it's not very nuanced. It's not, it lacks a lot of subtlety and sophistication around this whole area of desire, <coughs> craving, clinging, eros. So we see that in this practice um, that I talked about in the Beauty of Desire Part 2 and, and now that we're calling opening to the deeper current of desire. And we saw it um, in terms of this bigger and more subtle exploration uh, with what we were calling clinging and realizing the spectrum of clinging and all the subtlety that can be evolved in that and, and also the framework of understanding what's happening there that when we let go of clinging uh, there's less fabrication we fabricate, there is less fabrication of perception, self, other world and this is telling us about the Buddha's teaching about dependent arising, dependent origination and emptiness which is intimately connected uh, with <clears throat> with the understanding of dependent origination through the fading of perception that happens and through the fabrication moving up and down on the spectrum. So we've talked about this and I've talked about it and written about it a lot. Um, that's a whole other deeper exploration of this whole question um, uh, of desire. It's a whole direction there that goes much, much deeper and uh, that we can actually realize a whole uh, integrated um, uh, conceptual framework of understanding in regard to dependent origination and emptiness there through the investigation of clinging and playing with clinging and it's the spectrum of clinging and its reduction and what that means <coughs> uh, so that's two large areas and, and then of course the whole area that we're focusing on for the most part on this retreat of eros and soul making and just see how much there is uh, worthy of a wider, deeper, more sophisticated, more subtle, more careful, and more nuanced exploration in in these directions. In other words, with regard to desire, eros, craving, and clinging. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.